Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And I have plenty of wonderful merch in my store, and the link is in my show notes. As well, if you're a fan of Canadian history, make sure you check out all of my shows, from John to Justin, Canadian History X, Canada, A Yearly Journey, and Pucks and Cups, along with Canada's Great War. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. Just click Donate. It helps keep this show going. Okay, on with the show. I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canada, A Yearly Journey. We're beginning with 1901 now, moving our way through the 20th century. The year started off on a sad note, when Queen Victoria died on January 22nd. She had been the Queen of Canada since Confederation, and had chosen Ottawa as the capital, and was a major figure in the creation of Canada. For that reason, she was called the Mother of Confederation. The Canadian government chose to make Victoria Day, which had been celebrated on her birthday in Canada since 1845, a permanent holiday. Many sites throughout Canada were also named for her to honour her, and Parliament was draped in black for days after her death. On February 6, 1901, Robert Borden was chosen as the new leader of the Conservative Party. He agreed to serve for one year and wanted the party to have a committee in place to find a new leader by that point. Borden would serve for the next 19 years as a leader. At the time, the party was in the shadow of the Liberals and Sir Wilfrid Laurier, so Borden began to work to rebuild the Conservative Party over the next decade. He would also start to craft the new platform for the party, culminating in the Halifax Platform of 1907 that called for government regulation of railways, telegraphs and telephones, and reforms to the civil service in the Canadian Senate. As leader, many found Borden to be reserved, serious, and distant at times. He also sought advice from outside the party, which often angered some of the MPs in the party. Many were unhappy in the direction that Borden was moving the party during its time in the opposition. Samuel Hughes, who was close with Borden, would write about him, stating, A most lovely fellow, very capable, but not a very good judge of men or tactics, and is as gentle-hearted as a girl. On February 17th, Mona Parsons was born. She would attend the Acadia Ladies Seminary in Wolfville, where she earned a certificate in elocution, which is the study of formal speaking. After her graduation, she attended the Curry School of Expression in Boston, and then came back to Nova Scotia and attended the Acadia University, where she began acting in local theatre productions. After some time in Arkansas, she would study acting and move to New York City in 1928, so she could become one of the legendary Ziegfeld Chorus Girls in the Ziegfeld Follies. In 1937, Parsons was introduced to William Lanehart, a Dutch millionaire, and the couple would marry on September 1st of that year in the Netherlands, where she began to live a life of privilege in a huge house. Despite her wealth and her ability to come back to Canada as a Canadian citizen, she would join the Dutch resistance in the Second World War with her husband in May of 1940, when the Netherlands were invaded by the Nazis. One of the most noble ways she helped was by providing sanctuary to Allied airmen who had crashed in the Netherlands. When the Germans first invaded, she dismissed the servants from her home so that the top floor could be used to shelter airmen. For times, when the Nazis searched the home, she would put the airmen in a hiding spot behind the closet in the master bedroom to protect them. Due to the fact that their home, which was called Ingleside, was a large property with a long driveway, surrounded by trees, it was a perfect place to hide pilots. 
The pilots would then be taken by the Dutch resistance boats that allowed them to rendezvous with British submarines and return to England. The last airmen to be housed in their home stayed for six days in September 1941 before they were caught by the Gestapo during a transport to the coast after an informer told the Nazis about Parsons. The story goes that on September 19, 1941, Mona and Willem visited with friends in Amsterdam, and upon their return back they had two men who were crew members of a downed Royal Air Force bomber. Due to the informant, the two men were arrested when they attempted to get out of Denmark. Soon after, on September 29th, Parsons was arrested by the Gestapo and sent to prison. Interestingly, in my research, I found stories that stated Parsons' husband was arrested with her, but others stated that he went into the underground on the assumption the Nazis would not prosecute Parsons due to the fact that she was a woman. In that story, she told the Nazis that her husband was on a fishing trip and she was promptly arrested. In this story, her husband was found three months later, after which Parsons went on trial. Parsons would wait for several months before her trial on December 22, 1941. Her counsel in the trial was a young German soldier who spoke neither Dutch nor English, and Mona spoke no German. Found guilty of treason, she was sentenced to death, but due to how she responded to her sentence, described as with dignified calm, the judge permitted an appeal and a sentencing to life with hard labor. According to sources, rather than break down at her death sentence, Parsons proceeded to walk out of the courtroom, then turned, clicked her heels and said, Guten Morgen, mein Herrn, or good morning, gentlemen. On March 6, 1942, Parsons was taken to Anrath Prison and then to Wittenbruck, where she worked creating plywood wings for small crafts and making igniters for bombs. Conditions were terrible at the facility she was kept at, and she was ill several times until she was eventually just tasked with knitting socks for German soldiers. In her work, Parsons would do a poor job on purpose as a sign of minor resistance to her situation. She would remain at the facility for three years until February 6, 1945, when the prisoners were put on a train and sent to a prison in Vechtja. On March 24, 1945, the prison was bombed and Parsons was able to escape with a Dutch baroness. Some accounts state that the warden opened the gates and told the women they could take their chances with the bombs and bullets flying around. Other accounts state that Parsons fled with the other person as the bombs were flying. According to some sources, the warden was sympathetic and would even give Mona her sweater and shoes. The two walked through freezing temperatures wearing just their prison clothes until their shoes finally fell apart. Parsons by this point was fluent in German, but she did not speak it out of a worry that her Canadian accent would give her away. Instead, she pretended to be a mentally challenged aunt who could not speak. The ruse would work, and there were close calls though. At one point, they accidentally hailed an SS policeman while looking for a place to spend the night. He offered to take them to his home, and they knew refusal would invite suspicion, so they went with him. The pair would evade capture for three weeks, exchanging work for food and a bed to sleep in. Over the course of those three weeks, they walked 125 kilometers through Germany until they were separated at the border. Parsons continued on by herself, finally reaching the Netherlands, where a Dutch farmer took her to the North Nova Scotia Highlanders. By the time she reached them, she was thin, weighing 87 pounds, looking sickly with blisters all over her bare feet. She was also missing two toenails. Upon reaching the Canadian troops, her story sounded almost unbelievable, and she was taken to the Canadian Army Rear Headquarters to determine if she was a spy or not. Thankfully, she would encounter several officers with the North Nova Scotia Highlanders that she had known back in Nova Scotia, and they would vouch for her. One man was Captain Robbins Elliot, whose father was the doctor who attended to Mona's mother during her final illness. No, no, no. I'm telling you, I was in a German prison camp for four years. What's going on here, Sergeant? Claim she's a Canadian, sir, but she could be a German spy. 
What's your name, lady? Mona Parsons. Mona Parsons? From Wolfville. It's me, Harry Foster. Ghost, what happened to you? I was in the resistance. The Gestapo caught me. Darauf besteht die Todesstrafe durch Erschießen. Meine Herren, guten Morgen. Dear lady, you have great courage. I recommend you appeal the sentence. Living in Holland during the war, Mona Parsons had helped downed Allied airmen get back to Britain. I will escape. And she did escape. And back in Nova Scotia after the war, she married General Harry Foster. Following the war, Parsons and her husband were reunited after four years apart. He had dealt with his own imprisonment, and he would never fully recover from it, passing away in 1956. Upon his death, Parsons found that one quarter of his estate was left to his mistress, and under Dutch law, the other three quarters was left to his biological son, whom he had with his mistress, and who Parsons did not know about. In the end, she was left with nothing, despite the legal battle that lasted for years. In 1957, she returned to Canada with nearly nothing, but she would reconnect with Major General Henry Foster, who had commanded two Canadian divisions during the Second World War. The pair had been friends earlier in life, and upon meeting again, fell in love. They would marry in 1959 and live at Lobster Point, Nova Scotia. Foster would pass away in 1964, and Parsons moved back to her hometown of Wolfville, where she stayed until she passed away on November 28, 1976. For the rest of her life until she died of pneumonia, Parsons would deal with nightmares from her time in the prison and her daring escape. On March 2nd, George Dawson passed away. Born on August 1st, 1849, George Dawson developed Potts disease at the age of 11, it left him with a deformed back and stunted growth. His parents provided his education during a slow recovery from the disease. Attending the Imperial College London, where he studied geology and paleontology, he graduated with the highest marks in his class. From 1873 to 1875, he surveyed the international boundary, and his subsequent report established him as a respected scientist in Canada. Beginning in the 1870s, Dawson worked for the Geological Survey of Canada, during which time he mapped out passes, mountains, and rivers in the Canadian Rockies. He also studied languages and cultures of the indigenous people. In 1887, he explored and surveyed the headwaters of the Yukon River, traveling by boat and foot to map an area of 164,000 kilometers. This produced some of the first maps of the Yukon. For that work, Dawson City Yukon and Dawson Creek, BC were named for him. In 1895, he became the director of the Geological Survey of Canada, and his collection of indigenous artifacts and photos formed the basis of what is now the Canadian Museum of History. On April 15th, Thomas Ricketts is born in Newfoundland. He would enlist to fight in the First World War at the age of 17, and on October 14, 1918, he will earn the Victoria Cross when he attacked the Germans by himself at a machine gun post, helping his fellow troops secure ammunition that was desperately needed. He was the youngest person to receive the Victoria Cross for a combat role, which was presented to him personally by King George V. The king said during the ceremony, This is the youngest VC in my army. The oldest Victoria Cross winner, George Dighton Probe, was also at the ceremony. He then returned to Newfoundland after the war, and when he passed in 1967, he was given a state funeral. Lionel Conacher was born on May 24th in Toronto, the third of ten children and the family often struggled to have enough money to support everyone. As a teenager, Conacher played on 14 different hockey teams, winning 11 championships. 
When he was 16, he won the Ontario Lightweight Wrestling Championship, and at 20, he won the Canadian Amateur Lightweight Boxing Championship. In 1923, Conacher played for the North Toronto Seniors, including on February 8, 1923, in the first hockey game broadcast on the radio. After the season, he was offered the chance to play for the Pittsburgh Yellow Jackets of the United States Amateur Hockey Association. This allowed him to retain his amateur status. He would lead the team to two league titles in 1924 and 1925. In 1925, the team went professional as the Pittsburgh Pirates and joined the NHL. At this point, he chose to go professional as a hockey player. On November 26, 1925, Conacher scored the first goal in Pirates history in a game against the Boston Bruins. Through that season, he had nine goals in 33 games. Many were surprised that he chose to go professional in hockey, as his first love was football. Both his brothers, Charlie and Roy, would also play in the NHL, and along with Lionel, all three wound up in the Hockey Hall of Fame. In 1926-27, Conacher came back to the Pirates, but found himself dealt to the New York Americans early in the season. This was not a good trade for him. His production stayed steady, recording eight goals in 1926-27, and 11 goals in 1927-28, but he was playing for Bill Dwyer, the owner of the team, and Dwyer was a known bootlegger, and the ready access to alcohol resulted in Conacher becoming a heavy drinker, which would see his production dip. In 1928-29, he had only 7 points in 44 games, and in 1929-30, he was only slightly improved with 10 points in 39 games. After that season, two things would happen that would change the life of Conacher for the better. The first was the birth of his first son, upon which he swore he would never touch alcohol again. The second was having his rights sold to the Montreal Maroons. And at first his production suffered playing for the Maroons, and at one point he was nearly traded, but no team wanted his large contract. Thankfully for the team and Conacher, he steadily saw improvement. In his first season with the Maroons, he had 7 points in 35 games. In the next season, he doubled his production with 16 points in 46 games. He improved yet again in 1932-33 when he had 28 points in 47 games, the highest total of his career. In that season, he was named to the second All-Star team, but then found he was traded to the Chicago Blackhawks. In his one and only season with Chicago, he would capture his first Stanley Cup and the first for the franchise, and he finished second in Hart Trophy voting. On October 3, 1934, he was traded to the Montreal Canadiens, but that was only part of the story. In what was the largest transaction in league history at the time, and is still one of the biggest trades in NHL history, through a series of trades involving four teams. By the end of the day, he found he'd been traded from Chicago to the Montreal Canadiens, and from the Montreal Canadiens to the Montreal Maroons. Conacher would remain with the Maroons for the remainder of his career, capturing his second Stanley Cup in 1935. The 1936-37 season, when he had 25 points in 45 games, proved to be his last season as he retired following the team's loss to the New York Americans in the playoffs. Following his retirement from professional sports, Conacher decided to try his hand at a new game arena, the arena of politics. His interest in politics came from sports as well. He wanted to get government aid for community parks and poor areas of Toronto. This prompted him to run for the legislature to do it himself. He ran as a liberal in the 1937 Ontario general election and was elected to the legislature that year, defeating the incumbent who had served there for 11 years. Conacher would represent the riding until 1943. During that time, he had an office over a service station and worked directly with the people in his riding. One time he found out that a woman had lost her husband and he told the undertaker that he would handle the funeral expenses. He would also pick up the fuel bills each month for the poor families in his riding. Conacher would eventually go on to serve in the House of Commons, and on May 26, 1954, 
He was playing in the annual softball game between the MPs and the press gallery. In the sixth inning, he hit a drive to left field, stretching a single to a triple. When he arrived at third base, he collapsed head first into the dirt as blood came out of his mouth. A few innings previous, he'd been hit in the head with a pitch. An MP, who was also a doctor, came to assist him, but within 20 minutes, Conacher was pronounced dead. It was the day before his daughter's graduation from the University of Toronto. There have been several honours bestowed on Conacher both during his life and after his death. In 1950, he was chosen as Canada's greatest male athlete of the half-century. In 1981, he was called Canada's answer to Jim Thorpe by the Pro Football Researchers Association. In addition to being a member of the Hockey Hall of Fame, he is a member of the Canadian Football Hall of Fame, the Canadian Sports Hall of Fame, the Canadian Lacrosse Hall of Fame, and is one of only three players to have his name on the Grey Cup and Stanley Cup, and of the three, he's the only one in both Hall of Fames. Every year, the Canadian Press awards the Lyle Conacher Award to the Best Canadian Male Athlete of the Year. Rocket Richard was the first person to win the award three times, and Wayne Gretzky has won the award more than any other person, six times. The award has been presented to a hockey player 26 times, more than any other sport. On June 13th, Montreal was shocked upon hearing the news that Ada Marie Redpath and her son, Jocelyn Clifford, part of the upper class that had helped to build the Lachine Canal and founded Redpath Sugar, had been shot to death in their mansion. Upon discovery of their bodies, the bodies were buried within 48 hours and there was little in the way of investigation, which allowed rumours to swirl around the mystery. Some say that the mother murdered the son, others said that the son murdered the mother. Many researchers have looked at the story of the Redpath Mansion murders, going through diaries, photos, reports and more, to figure out what exactly happened. It's likely we will never know who committed the crime, and the mansion itself was torn down after being in disrepair in 2014. Frank Boucher was born on October 7th in Ottawa, the youngest of six sons to Tom and Annie Boucher. Tom was highly skilled in athletics and played rugby football for Ottawa College and the Ottawa Rough Riders, winning the Canadian Championship in 1894, 1896, 1897, and 1901. Dropping out of school at the age of 13, Boucher worked for the federal government in the munitions department during the First World War. After the war, he joined the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and moved west to Lethbridge, where he began to play hockey for the Lethbridge Vets. Boucher then spent a year in Banff, and in 1921-22, he came home and started playing for the powerhouse Ottawa Senators, alongside his brother George. In his first game, he would score in the closing minutes of the game. On November 16, 1926, Boucher took the opening ceremonial face-off, the first face-off in Rangers history against Nels Stewart of the Montreal Maroons. The puck was dropped by Lois Morin, a silent film star. Boucher, a player known for his exceptionally clean play, ironically had a very penalty-filled game for his first in the NHL. He would get into a fight with Jack Phillips, earning a major penalty and a $15 fine in the process. Boucher would also be cut on the head during the fight. Through much of his career with the Rangers, Boucher would play on what was called the breadline with Bill and Bun Cook. In 1927-28, that line combined for 87 points, impressive considering teams played only 44 games at the time. In 1932-33, that line would score 122 points in 48 games. Throughout his career, Boucher was known for being one of the classiest players on the ice. When Lady Bing donated a trophy for gentlemanly play after seeing a vicious game of hockey, Boucher would win the Lady Bing trophy seven times in the next eight years. It got to the point that he was given the trophy outright, and Lady Bing donated another trophy to the NHL. His clean play earned him the nickname of Raffles, after a fictional gentlemanly thief. With his last Lady Bing trophy in 1935, Lady Bing herself stated she wanted him to keep the trophy, and NHL President Frank Calder would say, 
I did not know when I presented the cup to Frank Boucher at the Lions Club banquet a short time ago that it was soon to be his for all time, and if I had, naturally, there were other things I would have liked to say on that occasion, but he deserves it. Sadly, the original Lady Bing would be lost in 1962 when a fire destroyed his farm. Boucher would retire in 1937-38. Over the course of his NHL career, he had 423 points in 557 games. His best season was 1929-30 when he had 62 points in 42 games. And he would die on December 12, 1977 in Kempville, Ontario at the age of 76. On December 6, Lord Minto held a skating party on the Ottawa River. During the party, Bessie Blair, the daughter of Andrew George Blair, the former Premier of New Brunswick, fell through the ice. Henry Albert Harper would dive in to rescue her, but sadly lost his life in the process, as would Bessie. His last words were apparently, what else can I do? The Calgary Herald reported, The remains of H.A. Harper, the young man who lost his life in an attempt to save Miss Blair, was discovered under the ice about ten feet from the spot where he went into the water. Lord Minto arrived on the scene a few minutes after the bodies were discovered. Harper was the best friend of William Lyne Mackenzie King, the future Prime Minister of Canada. King would write in his book The Secret of Heroism, The man I loved as I loved no other man, my father and brother alone exempted. The loss of his friend deeply impacted King, who became the head of a government committee tasked with finding a way to honour his friend's sacrifice. In 1905, a statue of Sir Galahad was commissioned outside of Parliament to honour Harper. It is the only statue not portraying a politician or monarch at the main entrance. In 1909, before King's first speech in the House of Commons in a career that would last 40 years, he laid ten white roses at the base of the statue. On December 12th, Guillermo-Marc would receive a signal from Cornwall, Ontario at Signal Hill in St. John's, Newfoundland. Using a 500-foot kite-supported antenna for reception, the signal arrived from Cornwall over a distance of 3,500 kilometers. This was heralded as a major scientific accomplishment and helped begin the era of radio in the world. Is holding, sir. Yes, bravo. <laughs> yes, indeed. This is going to make your world a lot different than the one I grew up in. You know where England is? Sure, it's over there. And over there is where that sound is coming from. Right, Mr. Marconi? Through the air, across the ocean, the first time ever. Finally, on December 29th, Arthur Peters became the premier of Prince Edward Island. He would serve as premier until 1908. During that time, he would attempt to renegotiate the island's representation in the House of Commons, he also negotiated an increased federal subsidy to the province. And some things happened this year that didn't have a date. Harriet Brooks became the first woman to graduate from McGill with a master's degree. Following finishing her degree, Brooks would begin to do a series of experiments to determine the nature of radioactive emissions from thorium. Her experiments would serve as one of the foundations in the overall development of nuclear science. Her contributions to the work on Rutherford's work on radioactive decay would help Rutherford win the Nobel Prize in 1908. 
Rutherford always gave credit to Brooks for making the discovery, but over time it would be associated completely with him. In fact, during a presentation at the Royal Society of London, Rutherford specifically gave credit to Brooks and her contributions. The Laura Secord statue was dedicated this year at Queenston Heights. It stands seven feet tall and honours the heroine of the War of 1812. Eva Tangway found her way to Broadway this year. Born in Quebec, she eventually became one of the biggest stars of the early vaudeville area. She would first appear in newspapers at the age of 19 when she appeared in a production of Hoodoo, and a castmate accused her of hot-dogging on stage, which resulted in Tangway turning and choking the girl until she passed out. Beginning this year, Prince Edward Island would enact Prohibition, while the rest of the country would follow years later and repeal it. Soon after, Prince Edward Island doubled down. The last major province to repeal Prohibition was Nova Scotia, which had it in place from 1921 to 1930. Prince Edward Island would continue for nearly two decades after that. And it would not be until 1948 that the province finally repealed Prohibition. And finally, Japanese Canadians in British Columbia were given the vote this year, but soon after it was taken away, it would not return to them for another four decades. I hope you enjoyed that episode and our look at 1901. Next week, we're looking at 1902. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many you can sink your teeth into. We also love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those links in the show notes.